Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. Will you turn with me in the Bible? I hope you have brought your Bible or your phone. Increasingly, I find myself using my phone because I can write notes in it, and I've never felt good writing in my Bible. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so I don't mind you using a phone. I, I actually do it myself. Um, Matthew 19, verses 13 through 22 is our passage. And will you stand with me for the reading of God's word? This is the word of God. Then some children were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them, but Jesus said, let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. After laying his hands on them, he departed from there. And someone came to him and said, teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, this is the word of the Lord, and we ask that my words may be your words. They may not come as my words, but by your sponsoring and and inspiring them, Father, that they may be your truth and come with power and conviction by the Holy Spirit. We pray this, loving you, thanking you for your goodness to us, this great goodness in which we walk and live, Father, the Trinity being for us. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Today is Reformation Sunday, celebrated within the Protestant church as the day on which Martin Luther began what we think of as the inauguration, did the inauguration of, the, of the, the, the Reformation by pounding his nail with the 95 theses under it into the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral. Today is the 31st. It's actually the anniversary of that day. Often we celebrate this on the Sunday closest to it. But today is actually the celebration of that day. And there are few things in the, the course of the last thousand years that have been more powerfully used by God than that action taken by Martin Luther. And I am a recipient, an heir of the courage and the faith of Martin Luther, the teaching of Martin Luther, as so are you. We, we do rightly to, to mark this day and to celebrate it because it is the day of, of power of being set free from the, the powers of men and being uh, 
being established under the power of God. And this is what Martin Luther did. He, he took us from what we can do to what God can do. But it's a process that must continue. It's a, a reformation that is needed in every generation and, in fact, in your own life daily. To remember that it's not what you do, but it's the power of God in you. There are certain things that are at the heart of the Reformation that could not be more true and do not, are not more needed in our day. And I'd say the first of those truths is that, is that you and I do not have free will. What we have is the will of a slave. And a, a slave regards himself as having free will, but he's under a master. And you, as Martin Luther taught, are either a slave to God or a slave to Satan. Man, he says, is an ass or a donkey. And he is ridden either by God or by Satan. But he is not in control. And that is you and that is me. Either God is riding you or Satan is. But you are not the architect of your destiny. You are not the power of your life. You are not the savior of your own self. You must have a savior. And so in teaching that we are without a will that can, that can name our future and claim it, Martin Luther set us free from the tyranny of saying, of the Catholic Church saying that we must lead a good life. We must do the things that please God. We must purchase indulgences as Tanner spoke about in Sunday school. We must go to confession. We must attend Mass, a whole series and system of acts that was created ex nihilo, out of nothing, not out of the Word of God, out of nothing, by the church of that day, teaching people how they could get to God. And of course, the whole system conspired to make the church at the center and to make the Pope the most important person in the spiritual and the material realm. The Pope was God's vicar on earth. He ran the world for God. Martin Luther set us free from that kind of tyranny. But that tyranny has a way of coming back and being revisited, of regaining its throne in our lives, and in the Protestant church, that tyranny has arisen, and we live in a day in which there's really very little difference between the Roman Catholic Church and its power and the Protestant church that calls itself the heir of Martin Luther. Both in this day are largely powerless. The influence is scant. The power of the kingdom of God is not seen in our culture. The world is not changed. The light is not high and on a hill, but is dirty and down in the plain. We know this is true. We know it's true of, of the church that we're a part of as much as it is true of the Roman Catholic Church. And we need to be reformed. We need to come back to the truth. In fact, if Martin Luther were alive today, there'd be certain things that he would, he would see and he would say, that isn't me. That's not what I taught. At the end of his life, Martin Luther issued a series of statements saying, you know, I taught this, but I've seen where it goes. He said, now 
I don't want you to believe what I may have said 20 years ago, but this is what I believe now. And I think in certain ways that if Martin Luther were alive today and he was here to see how the Protestant church claiming him as its leader and inspiration has gone to the point of saying, all I have to do is have a mental belief in Jesus and I am saved and that is power. He would say, no, no. My first thesis was when our Lord and Master commanded that we repent, he meant for repentance to be all of life every day, not just one act in a week. And repentance, you know, is not only understanding the reality of our sin, but it's leaving it and running towards the righteousness of God. Can we do this on our own? Absolutely not. Can we do this without the grace of God? Absolutely not. Is there anything in our repentance and our obedience that is meritorious, that makes us worthy in the sight of God? Absolutely not. There is nothing but the blood of Jesus that saves us. But the faith by which, through which, the blood of Jesus is applied to our lives, the faith that is the faith that leads us to Christ and to salvation is not a weak faith. It is not a nominal and mental faith. It is power. And we've lost sight of that. It is power to act. It is power to obey. And our church is powerless to the extent that we have lost sight of this truth that faith is obedience in power. Faith brings the power to obey. Faith itself is a gift of God. Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He authors it and he perfects it. It doesn't come from within. It is a gift of God. God gives us faith. But that faith does not come to us naked and unadorned, separated from power, separated from action. It is always consistent with the word of God in being powerful and leading us to obedience. So we read in our passage that some children were brought to, to Jesus so that he might lay his hands on them and pray, and the disciples rebuke them, rebuke those who are bringing them. And Jesus says to those who, who are his disciples and are reprimanding the parents, let the children alone. Do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. What is it about children? that makes them uniquely like those who come into the kingdom of heaven. Well, of heaven. It's very clear, isn't it? They're brought to Jesus. They do not come under their own power. They don't come in their own understanding. They are brought and they recognize the God who loves them. They're brought to him. They're not walking. They're not choosing. They're brought. And Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. I've said that the church in America lacks power, and I don't think there's any denying that. I don't think any of you would say to me that the church is powerful. It's not. But I'm turning at this moment, at this point, to talking about you and your life and saying, many of you, many of us lack power. We speak of a power that we don't really feel or know. And that is not the way that children enter the kingdom of power. They come in loved by God, blessed by God, and let me tell you, they don't leave Jesus without being changed. 
It was a great gift to have your mother or father lead you to the lap of Jesus and for him to put his hand on you and pray for you and bless you. What a gift. And it changed the lives of those children we know. God blessed them. God claimed them. God said, you must become like these to his disciples if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven. So I encourage you like children to enter into the kingdom of heaven because as you renounce your abilities and look to God in faith for his power, you will find great glory in your life and power and you will see the power of God here on earth. Now this is a vital passage. In this passage, Jesus addresses the thing he addresses over and over again, the question of questions, how do I inherit eternal life? You're going to die. It may not seem near and close today. We may live in a culture which tries to sanitize death and hide it away, keep it from being seen, keep it from being visible, not like the day of Martin Luther when the dead during the plagues and the the years of this century would be lining the streets where people knew death in an intimate way because a family would have 11 births and three children grow to adulthood. So death does not seem very clear or near to you, but it is near It is clear. It is your end. And so the question of how might I inherit eternal life may not seem a pressing one to you at this moment, and I doubt it did during Luther's day because no one thinks they're going to die. But we are going to die. And when we die, the question of eternal life will suddenly assume great importance to us. If it has not been important to us before we died, It will be of immense importance the moment after we die. And Jesus is addressing constantly in his his teaching, how is it that we obtain eternal life? In verse 20, we're told that this is a young man who comes to Jesus and asks him in verse 16, teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? What good thing must I do? What must I do to go to heaven? That's the question. What good thing does God require of me to become a child of God, a son of God, rather than a child of wrath? How do I go from having Satan ride this horse, this donkey, this ass? How do I go, probably the last term is the best one for you and me. How do I go from that to being ridden by God, to being a colt that God is pleased to ride? How do I go from the one to the other? How do I enter heaven? This is a good man. And yet he feels, in part because he is a good man, his unworthiness of eternal life. He leads an upright life, but he questions his worthiness. He is not confident. He is not like the proud Pharisees who walk along in the temple declaring their love for God and their righteousness that makes them better than others. This is not that kind of man. He has none of that. He's no Pharisee. This young man has doubt. Perhaps like you do. He questions. And in a sense, he's righteous. But he knows that his righteousness is not enough. He is, I think, all of us, when we honestly consider who we are in the light of eternity, in the the light of the immensity of the life to come, in the light of the glory and the holiness of God, and we think about how can we possibly enter heaven 
as corrupt and sinful as we are, how can we come into the presence of an eternally holy, holy, holy God? What can we do to enter that presence? How can we remove the stain of our sin? How can we become holy so that we are worthy to enter the, God, the presence of the God who says, you must be holy as I am holy? So he is doubting. And he would like to be a son of God. And he would like to enter into the home of God. And he wants to live there for eternity. There is a hope in this guy, a desire. But he feels, and you must feel, if you're like him, the chasm that's created by your desire versus your worthiness. This great unworthiness, and yet this holy God and our desire to be near him. So he comes out of a sense of unworthiness, and he asks Jesus what he must do. And as we look at Jesus' answer to this young man, the question he asks and the, the answer Jesus gives to him, I want to ask you to do three things. First, I want you to listen to God's word here and not go immediately to your own thoughts or the teachings you have heard in the past or systems that you've been exposed to of theology, plans of salvation. Lay aside the accoutrements of your religious upbringing, all the things that you've been taught by your Sunday school teachers, by your perhaps your parents, and listen to the word of God afresh. De novo, new. Let your mind be virgin to the word of God. Receive it as it's stated. Don't consider the, the variety of pious presuppositions that you automatically bring to a passage like this. Don't listen to the things you've been taught that may lead you to deprecate what Jesus is saying here, to put it down and say, well... Listen to God. Listen to Jesus, the Son of God. Hear what he says. Allow him to speak to you and don't filter his words through some grid that isn't here in this passage. If you are Protestant, if you are evangelical, if you are Reformed, what Jesus says will likely conflict with certain presuppositions in your way of thinking about salvation. It's just honestly true. Same is true in a different direction if you've grown up in the Roman Catholic Church. You're going to hear what Jesus says to this young man if you're a Roman Catholic, and you're going to say, whoa, that's not the salvation I've been taught. I'm taught that I gain God's approval by taking these steps. As a normal sinner, I go to God through the church, through mass, through baptism, through confession, and in those ways, I deal with my sin. Jesus what you say to this young man is what the church, the Catholic church, teaches is only for the great saints who do what are called supererogatory works of merit, things that go above and beyond the normal person. And you're calling here this normal man to a supererogatory, to something well beyond what we can do. That's your response if you're Roman Catholic. You're going to say, whoa, 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 whoa. This, this is not the kind of merit that God is looking for. If we're Protestant, we're going to say, well, God doesn't want us to do anything. He just wants us in our minds to believe, to have faith. If you're Protestant and evangelical, the very question the young man asks is going to set your teeth on edge. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And you're going, whoa, 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 guy, you don't understand. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing that can be done. It's not what you do. You can't do anything. Your very, your very question reveals how misled you have been. You show your lack of understanding by that very question. 
And by dismissing his question, you're going to be in danger of dismissing what Jesus says in response to this man. You will not hear Jesus because in your mind you will have already answered this young man in the way you've been taught to. So you're going to say, well, you can't do anything. Doing is not faith, and your mind will then be closed to the words of Jesus Christ. If you have a Roman Catholic background, you will not object to the question because you're taught that eternal life is a result of actions you take and your parents take and the church does for you that your parents and you submit yourself to. But you will object to Christ's answer because it demands more than you've ever been told Christ would demand of someone to gain eternal life. So I ask you put aside your preconceptions and your systems and everything that would force your reading of Jesus, your reading, in fact, not just your reading of him, but the very words he speaks into a Procrustean bed, into a bed that forces him into the way you want him to be. And listen, listen with fresh ears, listen with an open mind to what Jesus teaches here. Second, I want you to understand that what Jesus says here I said three things initially. First is don't force Christ's word into your Procrustean bed, your way of understanding things. Listen to him. Second, understand that what Jesus says here does not differ from Paul in his teaching on how we are saved. And when Paul says that we are not saved by works of the law, he is not saying anything different than what Jesus teaches here. Nor is Jesus saying something here that requires a rigorously logical and systematic updating and clarifying by Paul. Paul does not correct Jesus. Paul is consistent with Jesus. When he says we are not saved by works of the law, it is a very clear statement that only the blood of Jesus, only applied by the sovereign will of God, are we saved. The question is not what saves us, But what is the character of a person who is looking to Jesus in faith? What is the character of faith? This thing that brings the power of God, this gift of God, that brings the power of God into our lives, that puts us on the path to salvation, that is the great power that Christ preached, the power of faith, of believing in him. Finally, I I ask you, don't try and find a way around the plain meaning of the words of Jesus here or anywhere in Scripture. Take what he says and listen to it. Jesus, unlike Martin Luther, never comes to a point in his life where he says, on second thought, forget the things I said, or I'm going to send Paul to you, and he's going to correct what I said. He never does that. Everything he said was perfectly true and remains perfectly true. So if we have to make it out that Jesus really doesn't mean what it sounds like he's saying because what he's saying doesn't fit with our view. If we have to go to Jesus and say, well, that doesn't really mean that. Well, I'd submit to you that you're not accepting the kingdom of God like a child. You're being very sophisticated. And you have views that are not childlike in obedience, but they're very adult, very, very philosophical. And philosophy is death to the spirit. Philosophy is the mind of man rather than the wisdom of God, which is foolishness in the eyes of the world. 
So having said these things, how do we obtain eternal life? It's the question that's before us. It's the question that was placed to Christ and the answer is before us from Christ as well. It may not be the answer you expect, but it's glorious, powerful, better answer than you thought, more glorious, powerful, and better than you ever anticipated because it's not just an answer that brings you heaven after death, but it's an answer that brings you power in this life. An answer for earth as well as heaven. An answer for power today in your life today. Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? Notice that he addresses Christ by a title, an honorific rabbi, teacher. Not Lord, not good teacher, plain teacher. Not sir, not son of David. The Roman centurion called him Lord. The two blind men called out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. But this man, well, Jesus is teacher, rabbi, and there are many rabbis. It's not an uncommon title for Jesus. It's less common than Lord. But it is a word, a title that speaks of a less firm personal connection than Lord. Teacher is a teacher. Lord is someone who's over you and you listen to. Teacher is just teacher. But when you call someone Lord, you're implying a certain submission. He comes to Jesus. He says, teacher. To this man, Jesus is teacher. He's clearly not coming in submission. Do we understand this? I don't think it needs to be said if you listen to the passage. He's not coming in submission. He's coming to see if Jesus can teach him. He's coming to see if Jesus can do something for his mind. He wants his mind cleansed, established, built up. Something is lacking. He feels this lack, but he really doesn't want Jesus as his Lord, right? He wants something mental. He wants something that will give him peace. That He can say, ah, I get it now, which is not what Jesus does. Jesus knows this, so he answers with the absolute pivotal statement of the entire passage, which seems almost like a non sequitur, like it's thrown out there and we, we're going to be tempted to just run right past it and not pay attention to it. Jesus says this in verse 17, and he said to him, Jesus says to the young man who asked him, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He, he says, why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Now you understand what Jesus does first. He says, why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good. Why are you asking me? There's only one, and who is the one? Only God is good. All goodness is God. There is none good. No, not one. There is no goodness in man. And so this young man comes and he says, Teacher, what good thing must I do? And Jesus says, why are you asking me about good? He's bracing him. He's saying, whoa, stop a moment. Why are you coming to me to ask what is good? There's only one who is good. What is it? And Jesus is putting it to him right off the bat. You don't call me Lord. You don't call me God. You're not worshiping me as the son of David. You're coming for a little bit of enlightenment and you think I know what's good, but if you think I know what's good, it's because I am good. And if you think I can teach you the good thing that gets you eternal life, then you must understand that I am God. That's right there. You understand this? By asking this question, he's bracing that guy. He's, he's putting his back against the wall and saying, 
Oh yeah? Oh yeah? You're gonna ask me about what's good? Oh really, I'm a teacher. But you're coming to me about what is good and how to inherit eternal life. But he leaves it at that. And that's why we're tempted to run past it and go immediately to what follows. Never forget this. Jesus begins by saying, oh, who am I? It's a blow to the head for this young man who is prepared to be good, who is prepared to do good, who is prepared to earn something by goodness. But there's only one who is good, Jesus tells him. This is a dual challenge to this man. First, it hits him in his confidence in his own ability to do a good thing, but it challenges him to to deal with who Jesus is. Either Jesus is just a teacher or he's good. Either he's just another rabbi or he can speak with authority about what we must do to inherit eternal life. So don't be mistaken here. Jesus is setting up the court He's establishing the bar here at the outset. He's saying to him, hey, am I God? Am I the one who is good? And am I thus a trustworthy source of information about eternal life? Or am I just one in the many teachers you've gone to in your life with your questions? Now you get this sense about this young man, don't you? He'd call himself a seeker. He's seeking but he's one of these young men who seeks and seeks and never finds. He does not find. And we know the character. We know the type of person. Seeking, 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 but not doing. Seeking, but not finding. He's always being taught, and he never learns. So don't think this is a throwaway line by Christ. Why are you asking me about what is good? In the answer to that question lies this man's eternal future. And the course the same is true of you why are you worshiping Jesus this morning are you really seeking him are you going to listen to him as he speaks to you because he's speaking to you in this passage as much as to this young man are you going to listen to Jesus or are you just here to be pious which is it God is here for this young man he's speaking to him he's answering him but the answer is that Jesus gives the very first answer, frames the entire encounter and this man's entire life. And on this question, why are you asking me about what is good? On his answer hinges this man's eternity and yours as well. Will you listen to Jesus? Will you listen to what he says? Or will you go away from this passage unchallenged like this young man did? So Jesus goes on after saying this initial statement, why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. You'd say, okay, Jesus, you've established it all. You've called him to believe in you. Stop right there. Any further you go, if you're a good Protestant, you're going to say, don't go any further. You're going to be going into the realm of moralism, Jesus. You're going into the realm of legalism. You can't do that, Jesus. You just call him to believe in you, and that's all there is. Come on, Jesus, you don't get it. You haven't read Paul. Am I not right? Am I not right? And Jesus here answers the young man, and it's a slap in the face to modern evangelical Protestant theology. Because what does he say? He says, but 
All right, but now that we've established the bar, why are you asking me? But if you want to know, if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. And we go, oh, you blew it, Christ. How could you tell him to obey? Don't you know that by calling him to obey, he's going to think it's his own righteousness and not yours? You can't say this to him. You're undermining the cross, Jesus. And of course, Jesus is not undermining the cross. And Jesus is not contradicting Paul. And Jesus is not teaching something that's at odds with what he came to do. He is pushing this man towards himself. And the young man responds to Jesus, you know, and you, you get the sense that he's feeling a little challenged by this response. Keep the commandments. Reminds me of the, of the scribe in the incident with the, to which Jesus tells the story of the, of the good Samaritan. Jesus says, keep the commandments if you want eternal life. And the man says, which ones? Jesus says, oh, love your neighbor as yourself. And the man says, who? Well, who's my neighbor? You know, that's the qualifying question. Well, do I have to love everyone or the people I like? This man says, which ones? Which of the commandments? That's an important question because it reveals a certain lack of confidence in this young man as to whether the commandments he must keep you understand his question, keep the commandments. The young man says, which ones? Is he saying there's a subset of the Ten Commandments that he must obey and there are others that are not so vital? Well, no. What he's saying is, am I supposed to keep all the dietary law? Am I supposed to keep all the sacrifices? Is it all the ritual purity laws, all those things about leprosy and all the things about mold in the household? Is that what I've got to do? to get rid of this sin that's over here because I can't keep this law. But is, are you saying I got to keep this law and if I keep this law, I'm entering into eternal life, all right? That's what he'd like to hear. Jesus does not give him that answer. What Jesus says to this man is something very different than that. When he's asked, well, which of the commandments, Jesus said, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. Straight out of the Ten Commandments. Notice it's the second table of the law, those commandments that deal with our relationship with each other. Not the first table that is, you shall have no other gods before me, no idols, honor my name, remember the Sabbath. He goes to the second table, the last six commandments, and he starts reeling them off. You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, okay? So he gives, and then the last one, you shall live, love your neighbor as yourself, which is not in the Ten Commandments, but is a summary that Moses gives of the Ten Commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. The two tables of the law comprehended in two basic commandments. So Jesus gives him the, the second table of the law. And yet, notice the interesting thing that Jesus does in his listing. All right? He gives him no other gods before me, idols. You shall honor the name of God, keep the Sabbath, then what? 
What's the next one, guys? Just give the one word. Murder. What's the next one? Adultery. Steal. Lie. Okay? But at the point of lying, which is the ninth commandment, what does he do? Well, he goes back to the fifth commandment and says, honor your father and mother. And he ends with that summary statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Did you notice that Jesus leaves one commandment out? Do you know which one he left out? That's right, covet. The 10th commandment, he skips. He goes back to the fifth, and then he ends with, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He gives them what is known as the second table of the law, but he leaves out the 10th commandment. Thou shalt not covet. Now, we understand that the commandments are big things, not little things. And so when Jesus says, God uh, does not want you to commit adultery in your heart, your lust is breaking the, the statute against adultery. And when you hate your brother, you are murdering, you're, you're violating the fifth commandment, the sixth commandment. You're violating the sixth commandment. And so we understand that commandments refer to all sorts of actions, that when God calls us to honor our father and mother, it's to honor all authority. So it's a classic Jewish and Christian teaching on it. When we come to coveting, what does it have to do with? Well, it's about our love for the world, our desire for things, right? And Jesus leaves it out. Is it purposeful? Of course it is. Young man responds, all these things I've kept. What am I still lacking? And so, in response to this statement by the young man, Jesus circles back and gives him the 10th commandment. He says to him, ah, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. He invites him to follow him, but he circles back to the 10th and he says, you know what? There is one of these that you are in violation of and you and I both know it. Go and give away your money. Now this young man will do everything else. He's not claiming perfection and saying, I've kept all these since my youth, nor is Jesus admitting perfection in this young man when he says, okay, there's one thing left. It's very clear. This young man is simply saying, look, I love God's law. I try and obey it. I have sought to be obedient. And that's what God seeks in us. It's a reflection of faith to love the law of God and to seek to keep it. And this man says, I've kept it all. And Jesus doesn't say, no, you're lying, you're lying, you're lying, wrong, wrong, wrong. He says, okay. He acknowledges that in these areas, this young man has been righteous, has sought righteousness. But he says to him, ah, there's one left. Go and sell all you have and give it to the poor. And then you'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. What he's saying to this young man is get rid of your covetous heart. Give away everything you have. Cut the chains that bind you to this earth and that will take you to the doom of this earth. Cut those chains. Throw overboard the anchor that's dragging you down. Give it all away 
you will obtain treasure in heaven and you will come and follow me and be worthy of being my disciple. What a gift. What a glory. But the man leaves. Mark tells us that Jesus loved this young man, but he let him go. And why did he go? Because he did not have faith. Look, I want to end by saying two things about faith. Faith that does not obey, that is not intricately tied with doing what Jesus says, but just mentally, mentally affirms it, is not faith. If your life has been one of mental affirmation of the things Jesus says, but not power in overcoming them, then you don't have faith. You are this young man, and you have not come to know Jesus as the only one who's good. and You are not following him. When we separate obedience from faith and say faith doesn't require obedience, there's no obedience to faith, we are saying that Jesus is wrong. We are calling Jesus a heretic. Second thing about faith, second thing is that faith is never without power. Now we're going to move on next week. The disciples say to Jesus, whoa, how could we ever enter the kingdom of heaven if it's so radical in its claims? Jesus says, well, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Wherever in your life you have that area of sin that has kept you from throwing overboard the chains in faith, from doing what God would want, wherever that sin is, if you will just open your ears to Jesus and trust him, you will find glory. So Jesus says to his disciples when they say, how can it happen? He says, yeah, and they say, we've given everything away to follow you. And he says, yes, yes, I know. And if you do that, you'll obtain so much in eternity. And besides that, you'll gain reward in this life. God is a great father. He never calls you to sacrifice without reward. You never give up for God in obedience without God coming in with the full glory of heaven. We must obey Jesus. We must obey him. We can no longer, as American Christians, define our faith as simply a mental assent. Faith does what Jesus says. This is not Jesus teaching a work salvation. This is Jesus teaching that he is God. This is Jesus claiming the authority of God. And if this man listens and obeys, he'll give all his stuff away and he'll receive much more back and he'll be a follower of Jesus. Throw the sins that you will not commit to Jesus out of your life, whatever it takes. If it's throwing the TV set, the internet, whatever it is, 
Jesus says, anything at all that keeps you from knowing my power and obeying me, get rid of it. He means it. Because he'll give you reward that's 10 times as much as what you're throwing away. And you will be his follower and you will receive eternal life. What is that thing? Perhaps it's more than one thing. What is that thing that you've said no to Jesus about? You want power? We want power. Say yes to Jesus and no to that thing. Say yes to God who is saying to you, just as he's saying to this young man, throw it away and see what I do. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us in giving us Jesus as our perfect teacher and our Lord and our master. We thank you that Jesus is God and that we can trust every word from his mouth, knowing it's from the mouth of God. Help us not to dismiss Jesus, Father. Help us not to ignore what he says to us about eternal life and power and the glory of faith. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.